Thank you. I appreciate it very, very much. Um, please turn with me to the book of Romans. And as I uh, get set up here, um, it's a bit different for me this week. Um, not because I'm with you, but because I am not with my fellowship that just confirmed me as a pastor <laughs> at that church. So I have a bit of bittersweetness of wanting to be with them, but also the joy that I have to serve you. Because as I spoke with um, Pastor Vandenlinder, um, it was clear to me that his love for you as a congregation, his desire to see you continue to grow, his desire to see uh, God continue to work by his spirit amongst us. And um, it's, it's a blessing to be able to serve in any way I can. So let me begin with prayer. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these opportunities you provided for us so graciously to come before you and to worship you as your people. Lord, we thank you for your gifts and the privileges that we have through Christ. And so, Lord, please help us to decrease that Christ might increase in us more. And Lord, speak your word through us this mor- through me this morning, or to make me nothing. In Jesus' name, <clears throat> amen. So, what gives you comfort or joy? I think in most, in most recent history, the last year probably has caused some of us to question that. At least we've been threatened with the loss of comfort and joy in many ways. Because for us, the comfort that we've had become so accustomed to, the things of just regular life that to us seem so normal, we're sort of taken away. And even whatever you think about um, the pandemic, at least you have to believe this one thing or agree with this one thing, that comfort and joy can be easily taken away, can be easily threatened. So if we take comfort or joy in our jobs or in our bank accounts, our homes, even in our families, even things that are blessings and good things in and of themselves. But when they get taken away, where does our heart turn? What do we run to? Who do you go to? And so I fear, brethren, that the answer to this question really reveals where we place our trust and our desire, reveals our desires at a deeper level. Really, it reveals what we get our strength from, where we see our hope of salvation. And even strong believers in Christ can be tempted. They can be tempted not to find their hope and comfort in God. And it really reveals how easily our hearts are turned to fashion idols. But in this text today, we see that there is great hope And there is grace and mercy for us who are in Christ, in and through Christ. So, if you'd turn to Romans chapter 8, 
I want us to see one primary theme throughout this text. As we look at verse 26 and 27, I want us to see how prayer is God's blessing and his ordinary means that he uses to strengthen his people. We'll see first how, his, how this text shows us our, need, our weakness, and how this weakness demonstrates our true need. And then secondly, how God strengthens his children through prayer. And so if you look with me at verse 26, Romans chapter 8, it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now I admit it's kind of awkward to start in the middle of a paragraph, my exposition. And so just to place us in direct context, and just briefly, we have to look at what is meant by Paul's phrase when he says likewise or in the same way. Where is this coming from? Where did, where did he even come from? Go, where is he going to? Where did he come from? And so we have to ask ourselves, is this text really for us? Is there comfort for us to derive from it? And so if you look at verse 24 and 25, it says we are saved in this hope. So there's a hope that Paul is really driving toward. And this hope is couched, it's really rooted in a great blessing. And so first, I want us to prove that it is indeed us that he's talking about. Not just us, yes, the believers in Rome, but really all Christians throughout all ages. Because if you trace the text, if you trace every single one of the pronouns, we, us, our, you will see that even in verse 18, he depends on the, the paragraph that comes before. So, really, we need to start at verse 12. He says, therefore, brethren, we are debtors. He's talking about what he calls brethren. And so, in verse 13, he gives us a little bit more of that. Well, it's those who are putting to death the deeds of the body by the work of the Spirit. So, our picture continues to get rounded out. In verses 14 and 15, he even says that this is done because they're led by the Spirit. And the Spirit bears witness to their adoption as children of God. And so, in verse 17, is those who belong to Christ and are fellow heirs with him. And they're able to suffer because of their union with him, their connection with Christ. And so, yes... Verses 12 and all the way down to the rest of the chapter is talking about the blessings and the hope that we have in and through Christ and how the Holy Spirit helps us, how the Holy Spirit works in and through his people. And we see how even in verse 18, how Paul recognizes our present sufferings, how Paul recognizes our struggle in a corrupted world that is due to our sin, that's due to the curse if you go back to Genesis 3.14 and all the way down to verse 19, you'll be reminded that God didn't just curse the serpent or Eve or Adam, but he also cursed the ground. He cursed all of creation in a sense. And we groan under the sufferings that such a curse brings to our experience. But even during this present suffering, there is hope for a future. 
There is hope for a greater glory, as Paul says in verse 18. And so it is this kind of hope the Holy Spirit is producing in our hearts to endure. And he also, likewise, as Paul says, helps us in our weakness. So in verse 26, Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. We have to think about what this weakness is. You see, it's so easy to think about weakness as a negative thing. And indeed, there are negative aspects to this weakness. And so you can think of this weakness as our own sin, as the consequence for our own sin. The things that we bring upon our own heads because we are guilty of breaking God's law. And so in verse 23, he mentions that groaning that waits for our redemption of our body. In verse 13, he talks about that mortification that we need to pursue toward our sin. We must be active in fighting sin, but it is not us by just by ourselves, by our own strength that we're able to do this. It says by the Spirit. And so back to the very beginning of this chapter in verse 3, we're reminded that where this weakness comes from is that we're not righteous by nature. We are fallen by nature. And so we're not able to fulfill God's righteous demands, His perfect law. And so for this, God has graciously granted us a perfect substitute, a perfect sacrifice in Christ. He fulfills a law for us that His Holy Spirit would also work in us to produce greater holiness. And so because of our sin, because of our temptations, because of our weaknesses in this aspect, we do not know how to pray as we ought, as Paul says. James 4.3 talks about a kind of prayer, a kind of prayer that comes from a lustful and sinful heart. And so he says in that text that you do not have because you ask with the wrong motives. And if you remember in Matthew 6, verse 5, or that beginning of that chapter, Matthew 6, he talks about those that would like to puff up their chest and pray in public in a way that draw attention to themselves so as to impress. So we're weak in our sin. But I don't want you to think that this weakness is just because of our sin, because he said that we lived in a fallen world. We are under a curse in a broad sense. So we can be redeemed by Christ and still struggle with sin. Though we are redeemed, we struggle with our own sin and also the sins of others. And so it's very common in our experience, very common in our experience to struggle with knowing how to react when people sin against us or hurt us. So there's a kind of weakness that's because of our limitations as fallen human beings living in a cursed world. And so that's why we groan, as verse 23 says. We wait for something greater to be set free from this present reality. Verse 18, again, talks about suffering under that curse. And as I mentioned before, Genesis 3 gives us the clear answer to that. 
In verse 17, we have to be reminded of our union with Christ as we are prone to despair during these times. But God, you, and so in this way, we are still unable to pray. Not because of a sinful heart, so much as because we don't even know what to ask for. We don't know what's best for us. Because we are indeed creatures. But even creatures, think of the best creatures that God has created. Think of Adam before he fell. Do you think that he knew exactly everything that he needed? No, because God provided for him a wife. He needed someone to come alongside him, to be with him and help him. To serve God with all their hearts. And so in Ma- if you look at Matthew at some point, in Matthew, ver- in Matthew chapter 20, there's this narrative. There's this point where the mother of James and John, the sons of thunder, I think in that text she's asking as a mother who loves her sons, the Savior, what, what place will they have with you? They've served you all their, their, with their whole heart. They've left all that they have. They've left their jobs to follow you. What blessing, what position will they have with you at your right hand? Will it be on the right or your left? And Jesus' response to her is so telling because he says that you don't really know what you're asking about. You don't know the kind of suffering that I will endure for you. And so you don't know what kind of suffering, the kind of baptism, as he says, that would be required for them to follow precisely in Christ's steps. So, brothers and sisters, the scriptures describe Christian life in this world. We're waiting for a hope to come, the glorious consummation of our redemption. But it's one that's marked by self-control and discipline, as 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 27 talk about. marked by strenuous labor and agony, as Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 4.10, to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. But it's also one of suffering and persecution, suffering unto death, suffering unto imprisonment, suffering for the sake of the gospel. You see that, for example, in 2 Timothy 3.12, or even suffering because of controversy and spiritual warfare, within our homes, within our churches, within our bodies. And so it's not surprising that we often would see sorrow and opposition amongst us. Paul begins Romans 9 with this strong desire that he has unceasing grief and sorrow, that he would see his brethren, according to the flesh, his fellow Jews, saved, following Christ, recognizing their Messiah, and so our Christianity is permeated, it's marked by weakness. We live weak lives. Weakness due to our own sin, but also weakness because we live under a curse. Living in a world where we can't even reason or think exactly the way that we should. Living in a world where people are so confused. People are so confused that they don't even know the blessing that they are made in the image of God. And they raise their f- they raise 
animals to the place of idols. So we are weak. But God has not left us to our own devices. He's not left us in despair. He's not left us alone. I wonder how often we think that we are alone. That the sufferings of the present time and the groanings that we endure, that we express, maybe during the night watch, maybe at the very beginning of the morning. Do we think that God does not care? Why would the Father send His Son to die for us in our place? Why would God give us the greatest blessing there is possible? Himself and yet not take care of us in the lesser things. And so I want you to see throughout the rest of this text how God strengthens us and how particularly He strengthens us through prayer because in His wisdom He uses several means to grow us in our faith because it goes up and down all the time. We need, just as our bodies need physical nourishment and growth, so do us as a holistic person made in the image of God. Our hearts, our spirits need this kind of growth. And so Paul says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses in verse 26. For we do not know how to pray as we should, for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And so he brings help. But who is the one who's helping? It is God himself, God the Holy Spirit, who helps us in our weaknesses in this particular text. And it's so easy, especially in our day and age, to be completely confused about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, for example. We believe in a God who is one. We believe in a God who is Yahweh, but he is also exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are not three gods, but one God. Yet, just as the Father is truly and really fully God, so is the Son, and so is the Holy Spirit. But he's not, so he's not some personal inactive force that we call down whenever we need help. He's not just something that gives us superhuman strength. He is indeed God himself. And he is God who loves and who creates. If you remember in Acts 5, when Peter talks to Ananias and Sapphira, he talks to them and says, why does Satan fill your heart to lie? But who does he say the lie was against? Not to Peter. He says to the Holy Spirit. And then later on, just a couple sentences later, he says, you have not lied to men, but to God himself when he says he lied to the Holy Spirit. That's just one text that clearly proves the deity of the person of the Holy Spirit. And so when you read texts like Romans eleven thirty six, where it says, for from him, through him, and to him are all things. Yes, I believe in that particular context, he's talking about the Father. But the Holy Spirit is God. And so just as self-sufficient is the Father, whose fullness of power and goodness and blessing, and we see our Lord Jesus Christ, who is truly man and truly God, 
so is the Holy Spirit truly God. In the very beginning of the Bible, we see that the Spirit of God was hovering over the faces of the deep. In Job 26, 13, you see it is by the Spirit or by the breath of God that the heavens were made fair. In Psalm 104, verse 30, he says, You send forth your Spirit, and they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. And so while God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are active in the work of creation, they have their unique roles in that action. And so it is in our redemption. The Father did not die on the cross. The Son did. And it is the Spirit's work to apply that perfect redemption that Christ has purchased by His own blood to our hearts, to make us born again and to grow us in holiness. As Paul said in verse 13 of this chapter, it's by His strength that we kill sin. And he also brings us true comfort and peace to our hearts, a kind of peace, as the Lord Jesus said, that surpasses all understanding. He is also, as the scripture ref- makes reference of, the down payment, the earnest, the first fruits of our true inheritance in Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans 8.15, and also again, excuse me, um, in verse 23 of this chapter as well. In Galatians 4.6, Paul says, Because your sons, through the work of Christ, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son, crying into our hearts, Abba, Father. And if you can just have one text ring in your ear about how precious Christ is, how God so loves us. Ephesians 1.13 talks about in Christ, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in Christ, in Him, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is given to us as a pledge of our inheritance with the view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. And so the Holy Spirit is a great blessing because it reminds us of our union with Christ and our true inheritance in and through Christ. And that this life, this time, we have a hope to come. We have hope for the future to come. We are not glorified now, but we will be. But it's not because of our works or our merits. It's all totally because of what He's done. And so, at the end of the day, our greatest hope and blessing and privilege is not that we get to live forever. It's that we get God. He dwells our hearts by His Spirit, even now. And so He helps us in our weakness, as the text says. He helps. He's active in our lives. In the same way, as I said, He's producing hope in our hearts to endure. He is helping us in our weaknesses, in and through our weaknesses. Not so that we wouldn't feel them, but that, so that we would see His grace and mercy and His strength. And so the concept of helping in verse 26 is not someone, um, excuse me, the concept of helping is someone, it's like this picture of like the strong man coming alongside someone that's limping along. 
and bearing their burdens alongside them. And you see this even in Psalm, this very word is used in the Greek translation of Psalm 89 when he says that when God is speaking about David, his servant, King David, but think about how all, many, many times David was brought to despair. All those times he, he feared death. He was persecuted. He was, before he totally entered the throne, how many times his life was in danger by his own father-in-law. And yet the Lord says to him, I will also strengthen him by my hand. So how does God, the Holy Spirit, come to our aid? It said, the text says in the latter half of verse 26 that he makes intercession for us. And so the Spirit of God intercedes for the children of God. He works in our hearts. He knows us best. He is God. But it's not the same intercession as Christ. There's something different here. You see in verse 34, Paul talks about that high priestly intercession of Christ. Now Christ is always living for us, even now. Exalted is the right hand of the Father. And so this work of the Spirit is a little different. And so as the Father who loves His children with an everlasting love, a sovereign love, He sends His Spirit. And the Lord Jesus, who loves and comforts and ministers to His people in and through this Holy Spirit. You see, in those three chapters in John 14 through 16, you have some really deep, deep things, as in all the scriptures, but there's some very mysterious things about God in those chapters. Because in John 14, 26, he talks about how the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, and Jesus says, in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to all your remembrance all that I said to you. So is the work of the Holy Spirit to bear witness and to teach and to illuminate the hearts of his people. But then in John 15, 26, he also says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And later in John 16, he talks about how he will glorify himself, how the Spirit will glorify the Lord Jesus. You see, the Father and the Son are sending the Spirit this doesn't make the Spirit any less God than them. It just means it have completely different roles in the outworking of our redemption. And so what this intercession is, it is one of the ways that God in His triune love loves us. Because as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, it is the love of God that has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so I've been putting it, off, putting it off long enough. How does he actually make intercession for us? And I'll be honest, it's a really hard text to interpret. Because whatever you say about the intercession of the Holy Spirit, it is not the intercession of Christ. It is different. And it is also something that doesn't make him less God. Because if in, in our thoughts and our understanding of how the Holy Spirit makes intercession for us, and how he, according to this text, groans with, with words that cannot be uttered, we should not think that it is though he is changing in some way, as though God has these um, internal conflicts and turmoils. It's not as though God is suffering in himself because it took Christ to take on human nature to suffer for us on our behalf 
on the cross. But I think there is a wonderful, pivotal, and necessary truth for us to comprehend in this, and that it is that God so inhabits our hearts. He so knows us so well because the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ, that he testifies and assures us of that very union, that again, that we are children of God, that he knows our every need, our sighings, our groanings, that he knows us so intimately that as though he takes on, as Paul talks about this kind of helping, it's as though he takes on our own burdens and identifies with us. And so the sufferings and the groanings, he takes on for us. He is a spirit of grace and supplication who helps us in our weaknesses. And so we are children of God through Christ and it is through his boundless reservoirs of grace and strength that he bears our burdens with us. In short, we have communion and fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit, through prayer. but we don't know how to pray as we ought. But we don't need to have divine omniscience. We have one who is God who truly lives in us. He knows how to address all of our particular needs. He knows you, a fallen creature, better than anyone can know you. And since he is the spirit of truth, he knows exactly how to apply his word to our own hearts. And when we don't know what to pray for or what to feel, it is God the Holy Spirit's work to bring that content to our prayers that accord with God's will. As 1 Corinthians 2, 10-13 talks about, it is the Spirit of God who brings a greater understanding of his word. Understanding that as he talks about in that passage, the natural man doesn't know about, but only those who are indwelt by the Spirit do. Because he is God. And our confidence and assurance can increase because we know that it's God who works in us, and so it is also God who hears us. The Father hears our prayers not because of something intrinsically beautiful in us as fallen creatures, but because he makes us beautiful through the work of his son. And we have access and privilege to come before him as needy children who are destitute and weak, feeble, living in a cursed world. We really don't know how to pray. If you would, go to 1 Samuel chapter 1. This is a passage that is easy to read over. You have this man, Elkanah. He has two wives. One's Hannah. But Hannah, you see her suffering. 
She has no children, yet she so desires them. And so in verse 8 of 1 Samuel 1, you see her husband asking her, why do you weep? How your heart is grieved. And the foolishness of her husband is that he points to his own himself as if he could provide the kind of needs that she needs because he's thinking purely from a materialistic or superficial fashion. He's thinking, I'm your husband. Aren't I better to you than several sons, ten sons, he says. But what he doesn't understand is that her needs are so much deeper. But Hannah, she knows who to turn to. So in verse 10, as she's weeping in her bitterness, she prays. She prays to her covenant God who hears her prayers, her weeping, her anguishing. She makes a vow. She makes her own covenant with God. That if he would just bless her and show his grace and mercy upon her, to know that she's loved, she's cared for, that she would devote him, that son, in service to this God, to the one true and only God who can provide our needs. And as we know the story, Samuel was born. But notice how in verse 12 and 13, that as she was praying before the Lord, Eli, the high priest, Eli the priest, watched her mouth. Kind of looked like she was just muttering to herself. He thought she was drunk, but what reality was happening is that she was praying. She was praying in such a fashion that she didn't know what to say. She could not voice her own words. But we know from today's text that it is the work of the Holy Spirit to intercede for us in and through our prayers, to hear our groanings and sighings and make them his own. And then in some way, some fashion, I don't know, I don't really comprehend, I There is perfect fellowship and communion in the Trinity. And so the Holy Spirit somehow makes those known. He works in a mysterious way in and through our prayers. And as we pray, we should think more and more how God is present with us. From the innermost depths of our beings, our hearts, they are the chambers of the work of the Holy Spirit. He motivates and directs us to pray. And so, as I said earlier, we have communion with God through prayer. We have communion with God, the Holy Spirit, through prayer. And it is a perfect fellowship that we also have with the Father and the Son in different ways. But today, we focus on prayer. God is so wise. How often are you thinking, um, you look at through the promises of Scripture, you present a need, you know you have a need, and you pray, and you get discouraged because it doesn't seem to get answered, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and in this, We see the wisdom of God. We see us how he's teaching us to really depend on him, to show us that we need to be humbled because we are mere creatures 
we're so easily prone to glorying in ourselves. Suppose that God gave you that blessing or even maybe it's not something materialistic. Maybe it's so much as wanting to know him more, to know him better, to draw closer to him. And yet we still feel some sort of distance. There's still some part of scripture that we don't understand. But in it, God is showing us who he is. He's making us desire him even more. He's increasing our appetites for the things to come. He's making us more like Christ. And he's showing us his infinite worth in it all. As Romans 11.36 says, it is from him and through him and to him are all things. And he will always be glorified forever. But our weaknesses, as I said before, We are weak because we are also sinful. That aspect of our weakness. We are easily blind and ignorant of our own needs. But as even in a small fellowship or even whoever watches this at some point in the future online, I want to address maybe some wherever you are, whoever you are, who really doesn't know anything about what has been spoken because you haven't come to grips with this kind of weakness. Because when Paul says that we are dead in sin, or when Paul says that there is no one righteous except God, and when Paul says we need a perfect Savior, that you try to save yourself, that you try to work out the law, by making yourself look pretty and beautiful in the eyes of others. Because you think that your own salvation depends on your perfect works. But you can't obey God's law the way he demands. If there is a veil over your eyes because you do not see Christ in his perfect beauty, you don't really know him. But there is hope for you. If you're in that place, there is hope for those who do not yet know Christ because he is a perfect and wonderful and sufficient Savior. He opens the eyes of the blind and unstops the ears of the deaf. He makes the lame walk. And what are these but just mere pictures of how he restores those who are dead in their sins to new life? And so if we're groaning and suffering, what are those things in your life that you're truly struggling with right now? At the end of the day, in your deepest chambers of your heart, when you're all alone, you think no one's watching, no one cares. What are those things Do you think that God does not care because you haven't seen him work the way that you want? We see that prayer today is something that God uses to accomplish his perfect ends. It's something that God uses to strengthen us. As he says, the Lord Jesus, he says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 
And he says in verse John, this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So as we come to a close, have you thought about prayer as warfare? Is prayer difficult because we've only thought about it as those really hard times of praying through a sin that we're struggling with or praying on behalf of other people all the time in intercessory prayer, having a long list of people to pray for, things to always comprehend and things to always catch up with. How often have we delighted in God and just thanking Him in our prayer? How often have we just delighted in God in thanking Him for His promises? Or even just praying back to Him the things that He's promised to us? Do we come to His Word, expect to be able to figure everything out by our own intellect and strength? Or do we actually ask God to depend on Him to help us to see the things that He would teach us? Perhaps you know much about prayer because it has been a hard life and God has taught you so many things. Yet still we struggle because Paul says we live in a tent now that groans, that waits for perfection. That waits, as he calls it, a seed that's sown that is going to grow up into a beautiful full flower. We don't know, we don't not experience whatever it is like to have a glorified body. But our Lord does. And so we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Because as Hebrews 4 talks about, we have a perfect Savior who has entered the holy place for us. We can approach Him in our time of need. Because we have the work of the Holy Spirit in us to produce godly prayers, but also to make intercession for us in making the, depth, the depths of our hearts known. And we have a Father who hears. And as I said, we have a Son, the Lord Jesus, who has purchased these things by the highest cost imaginable. His own blood. He entered, our, he entered flesh for us. He took our flesh in our place. So, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We don't know how to pray as we should, but it is the Spirit Himself who makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And it is He who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Take courage, brothers, sisters. Take courage. God knows you better than know yourself. And he provides even when we don't ask the right things. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you that through him we are made righteous. That you treat us in him as if he were righteous. And we thank you that you not have you have not left us to ourselves. We have thank you that you have given us your word. You have given us your spirit. 
We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you make intercession for us before the Father in the heavenly places, and you're exalted, and you know our weaknesses and our failures, our infirmities, because you were tempted in many ways as we are, yet you are the sinless one. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your work. Help us to believe Help our unbelief that we may go boldly, knowing it is God who works for us. And how great do we get to serve you, O God? We get to serve you, fallen creatures. We get to serve you in a way that cannot be comprehended. We thank you for your precious promises and the privilege of being called sons and daughters of the Most High. And it is only through Jesus Christ we can pray. Amen.